Well, over the next four weeks, uh, I'm going to be having a fair bit of work done on my teeth. Probably too much information, but it has to be said that I hate the dentist. Um, I hate discovering more problems with my teeth. Uh, genetically, I'm told that I have chalky teeth, so my molars just kind of break apart. Now, thankfully, I'm not in the lineup for a root canal yet, uh, although that's almost inevitable given my teeth. Uh, I'm not in the lineup for any extractions yet either. Uh, that's not on the cards. But I do need to get, count them, four fillings done over the next four weeks. Now, as I stare down the barrel of worse things to come, uh, I'm doing everything now in my power to try and protect myself from getting those root canals. Uh, to make sure that the fillings go as planned and that nothing more will be needed. So I've started flossing morning and night, uh, which, if you know me, is kind of unusual. Um, I've bought a flosser that's like a water jet that sprays between your teeth, and if you miss and it hits your eye or something, it'll blind you. It's very powerful. Um, I've started swishing my mouth with Listerine and watching my cheeks explode, just like in the ads, and I've continued brushing as diligently as I can. Because a knowledge of my future, well, it impacts how I live now, and quite dramatically. So we're going to go to point one, because uh, the Corinthians in Corinthians 6, what we have here in kind of an overview is a couple of examples of how what lies ahead for the Corinthians should change how they understand and interact with things in the here and now. Uh, you'll see the two things on your outline, uh, the two things Paul wants uh, to raise with these Corinthians. And with both of these, the common solution Paul presents is to look forward. He wants to get the Corinthians to look ahead and see that this life matters because of what is to come. Now, what are these issues? Uh, if you're following along in your outlines, you'd see uh, the two major issues are listed there, and I've got them up on the screen as well. Uh, in the first instance, Paul addresses Christians who seem to be in the habit of taking one another to court over seemingly trivial things. And secondly, Paul covers the problem of sexual immorality in the church as well. And so we're going to tackle these one at a time, starting with Christian lawsuits. So if you have your Bibles, open them uh, and keep them in front of you. We're going to be starting at verse 1 of chapter 6. Paul writes, If any of you has a dispute with one another... Do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Now, if you've been following along the series, you would know the Corinthians are proud people. Uh, they're competitive. They're quite assertive people. Uh, and it seems that they put just as much energy into suing one another as they did dividing over party lines when it came to following church leaders. Uh, it seems the Corinthians, uh, in a very similar uh, case to us here in the West, they really cared about their rights and they really cared about their freedoms. Uh, just take a look at verse 12. I have the right to do anything, they say. I have the right to do whatever I want. Now, when Paul writes this in verse 12, he's clearly quoting the Corinthians, probably something he's heard them say, uh, or alternatively, it was probably contained in the report that Chloe's household had sent him. And uh, anywhere in the freedom-loving West, this is kind of our mantra. You know, don't tell me what to do. I have the right to do whatever I want. And as we come to the second part on sexual immorality in a moment, uh, it really seems that when we consider this and the sexual immorality stuff, not much has really changed. 
Um, you may as well call this first Brisbaneites or first Australians or whatever you want to call the letter. Now, there's nothing wrong with individual freedoms. Uh, in fact, it's profoundly good in many instances. But for the Corinthians, this meant turning their noses up at people who criticised their sexual lifestyles. And ultimately, when someone infringed on their rights, which for them, it became a pretty common reason to take someone else to court. Now, we don't see Christians doing this sort of stuff uh, very frequently, at least I hope we don't, um, though it does happen. Uh, but to help you understand kind of the style of, of what court looked like, what they were doing here in Greek culture, uh, I've got a quote here from someone who talks about this. It said, The Greeks were naturally and characteristically litigious people. Uh, the law courts were, in fact, one of the chief amusements and entertainments. It's kind of like Judge Judy. Uh, in a Greek city, every man was more or less a lawyer. So everyone had their own opinions. They threw their opinion out. Uh, and a very, spent a very great part of his time either deciding or listening to law court cases. To law cases. Uh, the Greeks were, in fact, famous or notorious for their love of going to law. Not unnaturally, certain of the Greeks had brought their litigious tendencies into the Christian church. And here in Corinthians, we see that Paul was shocked by this. This really is the, the first century version of Judge Judy. It was a kind of a law cross-entertainment genre that was going on, and the Greeks, they loved this stuff. Uh, but if you've ever watched Judge Judy, I spent a fair bit of time in my childhood when I was homesick watching this, it really does provide a fair bit of entertainment value. The problem is that for Corinth, the world was impacting the church, and what the world loved was sucked into the church. And so fellow believers then started taking one another to court in these extremely public trials. So naturally, uh, Paul, he sat back in shock at their boldness, their brazenness, their, their lack of shame as the church's reputation is thrown to the dirt publicly. It's a terrible look for the people of God. Uh, we know in, in some respect within our own denomination just that the public nature of the receivership is very damaging to us. But here as Christians air their dirty laundry in front of one another, it really isn't a great look or witness to the watching world. Now there's one thing uh, I've learnt about being a Christian. Um, one thing that I've learnt in my time is that outsiders, they can be very, very quick to judge our faith. Very, very quick to point out any fault, any and every inconsistency they find. So the question is, what should the Corinthians be doing here instead? Well, like someone who sees the writing on the wall uh, regarding their dental record, uh, their attention, it needs to be brought forward. They need to see what the consequences of these actions are. And this should enable them to then put in place things now to prevent further issues. And so here, Paul redirects the Corinthians' attention forward to the future kingdom of God. And he tells them this life matters because of what is to come. So if you read with me from verse 2, Paul says, Do you not know that, that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that, that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Here, Paul kind of goes all out. He pulls out the big guns and he reminds the Corinthians that we, Christians, will actually judge 
angels, believe it or not. And some of you, when you saw that read, you're probably like, whoa! (laughs) And I agree, it's a strange thing to hear. Uh, It's not something you often talk about. Uh, In fact, I don't ever remember having a conversation with another Christian that went, yeah, man, I'm really looking forward to judging those angels in the next life. (laughs) It's just not something that's even on our radars most of the time. And so because of this, I don't really want to head down the rabbit hole of exactly what this means. Um, You can do that yourself if you like. But I do want to highlight that this is the same line of reasoning we do find elsewhere uh, in the Bible. So in places like uh, 2 Peter and Jude 6, there there is talk of fallen angels who will one day be judged. But we don't want to get too distracted by this because that's not Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 6. Rather, the reason he raises this in the first place is to say that you, Corinthians, you will one day sit in judgment over heavenly beings, right? You will one day have an enormous responsibility to judge in ways that you can hardly imagine. So surely you can sort out these matters of, you know, Mr. Roger suing old Mary for scratching his favourite car or sitting in his chair on Sunday morning. Mr. Julius chewing too loudly during communion, whatever it is. Surely you can deal with these trivial cases. How you do things in this life matters because of what is to come. Now, there's a lot more uh, in these verses, uh, stuff that we don't have time to cover, so I'll leave that up to you to look at, because I want us to move on to the second point in this, uh, the problem of sexual immorality in the church. So come with me down to verse 12 as we look at the next thing on Paul's agenda. Verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. But I will not be mastered by anything. You say food is for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. Now here, Paul, as I said earlier, he's quoting the Corinthians. Now, generally speaking, if you want to win a debate with someone, uh, the rule of thumb is to know their position better than they know it themselves. And you need to be able to articulate their position better than they ever could. And in this instance, you kind of see both happening here, where both sides are beginning to try and do this. Uh, Paul's proclamation of freedom in Christ, I suspect, might be one of the reasons they say we have freedom. Uh, We read all about this in his letter to the Galatians. And Paul's proclamation of freedom in Christ, perhaps, has been interpreted by the Corinthians as a license to sin. When the Corinthians say, I have the right to do anything, there's a certain extent which, even in the Christian realm, they're kind of right. As Christians, we are free from the law. But Paul adds, even so, not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but... Paul says, I shouldn't be mastered by anything. It seems as though the the Corinthians had used these expressions to justify their loose sexual lifestyle. And in particular, if you look down at verse 15, to justify doing things, it seems, with the local prostitutes. Uh, These are the prostitutes. If you remember last week, there was a temple of Aphrodite and the prostitutes would come down during the night and ply their trade. Perhaps they were sleeping around with them and saying, well, I can do anything. I'm free. But their argument isn't just about their freedom in Christ. If you take a look at verse 13, 
Uh, they have what they probably thought was a watertight rationale for doing whatever they wanted with their bodies. Verse 13. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. In essence, they're saying, what does it matter what I do with my body? In fact, sex is like an appetite. You know, why not satisfy my cravings? Because food and my body, well, fact check, Paul, guess what? God's going to do away with both of them. So who cares what I do with it? Uh, It's an amazing uh, expression, this one, an amazing justification. uh, Because this is the same line of reasoning we even hear today, in some cases, to justify this sort of stuff. You know, sex is just an appetite, just something to feed on. Uh, I'm only going to live once, I'm only going to have this body once, so I'm just going to enjoy everything I can. I'm going to heap enjoyments all over my body as much as I can in this life. But Paul says, actually, you're profoundly, profoundly wrong about something here. You might think that the body is done away with after this life, which was a common thought in that day, but you'd be wrong. He directs their attention forwards, as he did earlier, by reminding them that this body and this life matters because of what is to come. We need to have a future perspective, not just about judgment, as we looked at before, but also about the body. You say food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. But I say this, read with me the second half of verse 13. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, he, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. And there it is. See, Paul is, is grabbing their attention. He's saying, have a look at this. Once again, pointing us forward this time to the resurrection. He's saying all this stuff that you're saying about the body not being important and the body disappearing after this life, you're wrong. In fact, it really matters because just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead, you will too. And this is Paul. He's beginning to lay the groundwork here for his massive chapter on the resurrection in chapter 15 later on. So, yes, your body really does matter even in this life because one day it will be raised. Now, will it be different? Yes, it'll be in perfected glory, but it will be raised from the seed as chapter 15 says, that is this body. Therefore, it matters what you do with it. But there's one more uh, utterly profound reason that sexual immorality is a dangerous thing for the follower of Jesus. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never, says Paul. Uh, That word there, I don't think it's strong enough. It's basically Paul's way of saying never, ever, ever in a million years. Verse 16, do you not know that, that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So that's saying there, the two shall become one flesh. Uh, That's from Genesis 2.24. You would have covered that uh, in your readings quite early on. Uh, And Paul quotes it here through the lens of sex itself. He says the two becoming one flesh is what you do in the act of sex. He's saying that if you think that sleeping around here will have zero consequences, then you're just 
plain wrong. Because sex is an extremely unifying act. Uh, There's no such thing as casual sex, as you may have heard uh, from the world. The world might have you believe this. You know, some people justify saying it's a one-night thing, that they're not even going to see me in the morning. You know, what's it matter to you? This is a private thing. It's between me and the other person. The problem is that that biblically, and, and we have all the data to back this up as well, that sex unites people in ways that is profoundly deep. There's a reason uh, sex is saturated in every part of our culture, in all the media we watch, uh, in everything we encounter. Uh, There's a reason that uh, the church is discovering over the years leaders falling from grace because of infidelity. There's a reason pornography has such a stranglehold on today's young men and even women. Uh, There's a reason that adultery is such a hard thing for a family to recover from though not impossible. Because sex is a profoundly deep thing. It involves more of you than just your body. And Paul makes that clear here when he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? There is something spiritual about our bodies. Uh, Paul actually makes this clear in verse 19 when he says that our bodies, they're they're temples of the Holy Spirit, right? It's like a house that the Spirit comes and lives in. And so when we engage in acts of casual sex, if if you think having intimacy without intention or having communion without commitment is something that's reasonable to think, well, you're playing with fire and you're at risk of burning yourself in deeper ways than you can probably realize. But this is the other deeper level. Paul says it actually affects your relationship with God. Your body literally is housing the Holy Spirit. In other words, there is a connection between body and spirit here. And so what the Christian does with their body actually matters. Now I'm going to leave um, that point there and we're going to move on to point... Uh, two, uh, point two of two in your outlines, being a bit unpredictable, not normally the, the three point. I want to keep you guys on the edge of your seats during this one, not that I really have to. God wants you to live differently, uh, dot, 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 and here we're going to look at several points which come directly from the passage today. So first, God wants you to live differently because you've been washed, sanctified, and justified. Now, that's uh, a lot of big words all crammed into one. Uh, I get that. Uh, In a nutshell, verse 11 is Paul's way of saying, I know that you're saved, and I know that God will continue to grow you into maturity. Now, this is extremely encouraging uh, coming from Paul because this is such a messy church. Uh, It shows an amazing amount of confidence in God's saving grace. And so that's the first thing. Uh, we want to realize God wants you to live differently because you were washed, sanctified, and justified. But the context of this is also really important here because this comes off the back um, of a big list of vices that Paul throws out, uh, the Israel Falau list, the notorious one, uh, and a description of the old life of the Corinthians. Uh, this list of sins, he says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, my guess is when reading this list, uh, some of you are probably distracted by the point about men who have sex with men. Uh, We live in an age where even being in the Christian church your whole life, sensitivities are still very, very high to this stuff. Uh, We have to add a bunch of qualifiers to same-sex attraction and other things, make certain distinctions and things. Uh, Further, it's it's no secret that the church, historically, in dealing uh, with this sin, uh, Christians and churches have been very hurtful and even acted in sinful ways. But I suspect the main reason that some of us squirm in our seats when the Bible mentions things like homosexual practice is because we live in an age now that freely and openly accepts this kind of lifestyle. And if you're not on board that train, you're going to get left behind. Society has moved on from these ancient and oppressive rules. The problem is that if you consider Corinth, this argument starts to break down. Why? Because our acceptance of sexual freedoms today, uh, it bears almost nothing on Corinth. In other words, if it's our social conditions which have been the primary driver in determining what is morally right and wrong in society, then when we consider the social conditions that Paul was speaking into when he actually wrote these laws, we wrote these rules, you see that they're a society dedicated to the literal act of worshipping sex. As I mentioned last week, this temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, sitting on a hill, towering over the city. Uh, There are other factors as well, uh, which led to the Corinthians um, engaging widely in acts of homosexual practice. Uh, In fact, if you look at greed, uh, drunkenness, theft, all of these other things in the list, uh, these could be traced pretty much to the social conditions of the day in Corinth. And so to think that that God's righteous laws would or should be changed for the sake of a particular generation simply because they were born into a particular cultural moment, well, it's simply wrong. And I bring this up because these are the types of things that you're going to hear from people about this particular passage. Times have changed. You know, the church needs to move with the times. We need to, to grow up and mature. We need to be more accepting of people's lifestyles. While Paul here, uh, he's arguing to a culture which was absolutely saturated in sexual freedoms, and he was arguing for the exact opposite. Now, this isn't to say, I want you to hear me clearly here, this isn't to say that homosexuality is the unforgivable sin. Um, It's not. In fact, it's far, far from it. When dealing with anyone in sin, the gospel always comes first. Right? People need Jesus. And we should all be extending an offer of salvation to everybody, regardless of their lifestyle. But we mustn't forget as well that Jesus calls us then to be washed and sanctified as well. Uh, The second reason, which we've already covered, the second reason God wants us to live differently Uh, is because in verse 19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So as a result, if our body is is literally housing the Spirit, we need to flee sexual immorality. 
Right? We need to run away from it screaming if we have to. And we need to begin putting safeguards in place to protect ourselves from falling down the ditch. Because God cares about our bodies. In fact, he holds our bodies in such high regard that he sent the Holy Spirit to live in there. If you need uh, proof that God places a high value on the human body, here it is in 1 Corinthians 6.19. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the final reason God wants us to live differently, uh, it launches off the previous two categories, is because in verse 20, you were bought at a price. Now the price, this was Jesus' blood. Uh, shed not just for the salvation of our souls, but also for the redemption of our bodies too. Have you ever considered that, that, that Jesus' death and resurrection was in part for the redemption and restoration of your physical bodies? God has purchased you at great cost to himself. And because of this, we are under obligation, therefore, to honour or to glorify God with our bodies. And so as we wrap up, I want to remind us that the world, yes, they are watching us as Christians. In fact, the world's not just watching, but they're actively involved in our lives, pressuring us to compromise, to kind of adjust God's law here and there around the edges, start loosening the screws on what we think is morally right and wrong. They want us to fit in with whatever the current cultural trend is of the day. But ultimately, when we think about this passage in Corinthians, this life matters because of what is to come. Not because of the cultural moment that lives in our lives, not because of what it tells us is important. And if we stand up under this pressure, if we honour God in our bodies, if we fight Uh, and overcome the temptations that this life throws at us, thick and fast. If we fight these things, we will glorify God. We are being watched. Uh, There is social pressure in schools, in the workplace, everywhere, uh, and even among the church itself. So we need to keep casting our eyes back, back to the salvation and forward to the life to come. Never lose sight of either of these important things. And while we're doing that, we need to ask God uh, to let these realities shape the way that we live and think in the here and now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would help us to be holy as you are holy. Help us to see sin for what it really is and to turn away from it. Lord, we confess that we are too quick to compromise, too quick to justify our own behaviours and attitudes which speak against your holy law. Lord, please guide us with the power and authority of your word and give us the strength we need this week to glorify you in our bodies and in the way we relate to one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.